All right, so as we come to these three kings, another element to these three kings is that Isaiah the prophet, now we're, most of us are familiar with Isaiah the prophet. He's amazing. We just got done with Christmas. He's the one that prophesied about the virgin birth, the king to come, all these things. Isaiah is amazing. Isaiah lived the same time as these kings. Again, these kings are Uzziah, Jotham, and Ahaz is who we're going to be looking at. And we're going to be reading texts about them in a minute, but I want to cue you up with the intro. In the book of Isaiah, the very first verse says, Isaiah the prophet of the Lord, during the time of the kings of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, we're going to get Isaiah in next week. He's going to show up with Hezekiah in this text. And, of course, he shows up again in Chronicles. So it's always nice when you can take the historical books and match up prophets for the timeline, where you get them at the same time and you understand who they're speaking to, the context of those things. And so that's important to our background. So we really, we have these three kings, and they're, all, they're related. So you have a grandfather, a father, and a son. They, they, together, they reigned for 84 years in the south of Judah. And during this time, Isaiah lived at the same time. And of course, Uzziah, the first of the kings, he reigned for 52 years. So Isaiah would have got a portion of his reign, all of Jotham for 16 years, all of Ahaz for 16 years, and then Hezekiah as well. So this is a background to our text tonight. And so tonight we're going to look at these three kings and their relationship with the house of God. Because we have text for us tonight that links each one of them with something to do with God and his temple and the central place of worship for Israel there in the southern kingdom. The temple that, of course, Solomon had built and is still standing a couple hundred years later. So we start with chapter 15, verse 1. We're going to read about, uh, he's referred to as Azariah here, but his name is used interchangeably as Uzziah. And so he's the same guy as Uzziah. Azariah is Uzziah. So in the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, who's in the north, Azariah, that is Uzziah, the son of Amaziah, the king of Judah, he became king. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done, except that he the high places, that's where people did their own little worship things, were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Then the Lord struck the king so that he was a leper until the day of his death. So he dwelt in, in an isolated house. And Jotham, the king's son, over the royal house, judging was judging the people of the land. So Uzziah... We can't underestimate the stability he brought with 52 years of being a king. And in the north, those kings were turning over constantly. You have all, Pekah, Pekiah, all these different kings. One would reign for four months or four weeks, and one would reign for two years, and one for 16 years, and they're all bad. So in those 10 northern tribes, the turnover of political leaders and the instability and the anarchy really is quite profound. But there in the southern kingdom of Judah, where God is protecting and watching over the tribe that would bring Jesus Christ, the Messiah, into the world and the lineage of David, this king, Uzziah, has brought great stability to the southern kingdom. In Isaiah's book, as he's pronouncing woes upon the land, it says in the year that King Uzziah died, that then he saw the Lord in his glory. It's interesting that this man's death, Uzziah, 
Because you don't get this with too many people in the Bible. So this is why it's very profound. When Uzziah stepped into eternity, the prophet, the, the prophet of that generation, Isaiah, has a vision from the Lord. And as he's thinking about Uzziah dying and what that would mean, the instability, especially in a monarchical system where you've had 52 years of stability, even though he's a leper and Jotham's in transitionary form making decisions as a king, just the presence, you know, when you lose someone like that, 52 years is stability. And by the way, in Chronicles, the resume of Uzziah is incredible from political level. It's pretty impressive spiritually too, but politically it's incredible. He was a great politician. He was extremely efficient in his organization and management as being a king. In fact, I was thinking about this, probably the, the one king you can most relate him to is Solomon in efficiency and management and organization. Jehoshaphat was a really good king between Solomon and him, but I would say probably Uzziah was the best king for political purposes, for God's people and stability in the southern kingdom. And so when he dies, we're told by Isaiah, Isaiah's like, what was this and what was that? And he says, in the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord lifted up in glory and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory in his righteousness. So he saw when this king died, and maybe he's mourning, he's thinking about what's going to mean for the people. The Assyrians are on the move. We're being threatened from a whole other group of people in the north that are more powerful than any people we've ever been threatened by. What does it mean? And he's like, oh, Lord, what are we going to do? And then the Lord gives him a vision of his glory. Isaiah the prophet saw the Lord in his glory related to this text. This is scripture interpreting scripture. So when he died, the day of his death, until the day of his death, when he died, and the whole region is, what happens now? God showed Isaiah the glory of the Lord. And that's a good reminder to put with Uzziah because we like good political leaders. They make our lives better, don't they? Like capable politicians will make your life better. If you have a capable mayor, it makes it better for the city you live in. If you have a capable governor, it's good for the state. And people in America, you decide who's more capable than not because they can leave a state they don't feel is capable and go to a state where they feel someone is more capable. The people have an opinion and they migrate and immigrate and move around the United States based upon that. There's a lot to be said for good political leadership. And then, you know, of course, we turn ours over every four years or you can get two back to back. But political leaders are things that give us stability. And something to focus on to get upset about, I suppose, as well, right? And so the Lord reminds us that he's over everything. And we're told that in the Bible. He's over the affairs of men, and he is. God is over everything. And so when Isaiah was just contemplating the death of this man, Uzziah, the Lord's like, I'm in control. It's a good word to think about because it's Scripture interpreting Scripture. Now, as for Azariah, or Uzziah, as he's called in Chronicles, the reason the Lord struck him, that's a powerful phrase, too. Like, I mean, when you think of 2023, things to avoid is the Lord striking you would be top of the list, right? I mean, chastening you, okay, we want the Lord to chasten us because whom the Lord loves, he chastens, so it's not pleasant, but you know where to be trained by it. But the Lord striking you is like, that's, that's, like, that's really not good. This king had done so many good things for the Lord. But the reason the Lord struck him, it goes back to the house of worship. He was a great king. 
In fact, as I mentioned Tuesday night, I mentioned again, he got stronger. See, some people fade as they get older, and their achievements are more, their resume of highlights are more like in their 30s and their 40s or even their 50s. This guy in his 60s, his resume is just building. Like he is, he, his accomplishments from 55 to, you know, till, till he went in the temple to be as like a priest, he's at his zenith of everything, his, his economic strength, his mental capacities, his physical strength, his wisdom. He, he's that guy. He's like Solomon. But then we're told in Chronicles that his heart was lifted up. That was his great sin. His heart was lifted up. So he became prideful. Now, we all are prideful. And, you know, the Bible tells us to humble ourselves. And if we love the Lord and we belong to the Lord, if we get prideful, he'll, we can humble ourselves and he'll bring it to our mind in prayer and times like that. And we can receive it and be corrected by it. Or if we don't receive it from him, then people that love us, like our spouses, if you're married, or people that really care about you, faithful are the wounds of a friend and deceitful are the kisses of an enemy, someone will have to say, like, hey, you know, this is, and someone you love will get in your face and say, this is not a good thing, and try and stop you from being prideful. And then ultimately, if you don't receive it from the Lord privately, and you don't receive it from people that love you publicly, then God's just going to hammer you straight up on public display. And that's what happens. Pride goes before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. And that's what happened to him. Now, when he went into the temple, he went into the temple to do the offerings of the priest. Now, that belongs to the Levites. He's from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. That's not his place. Or as we say, he got out of his lane. That's not his lane. And he's going somewhere to none of his business. And you say, now, okay, what's so bad about that? Well, apart from the fact that God's word said, don't do that, that only the Levites do this, there's something more to it that's worth noting. There's something that touches here that maybe we should consider about the glory of Jesus Christ for a moment. Jesus Christ is the ultimate king. There's a great king of Israel. Jesus on the cross is the king of Israel. Jesus in Revelation coming in glory is the king of kings. Jesus is the king of the universe. The universe is a monarchical system where Jesus is over everything. All things are made by Christ and for Christ. In him all things consist. He's before all things and nothing was made that was not made that he didn't make. And the father loves the son has committed all judgment to him. He's, he's the king of the universe. Every living existence in this universe, he's king of it. So whatever fullness a king might have about himself, Jesus is the ultimate king. But for the nation of Israel, Jesus would be more than the king because he's not just for the nation of Israel, but for the church and for the Gentiles and non-Jews. He's, he's the great high priest. So he is the priest. Only Jesus, can be, only Jesus can be king, priest, and prophet. Uzziah can't make him so, hey, I'm a great king. I'm going to be a priest too. Maybe I'll be a prophet too. No, no one takes the position of prophet to themselves and only the Levites can be priests. So Jesus Christ, all, the king... The priest and the prophet, they all ultimately point to Jesus and the ministry that Christ has for each one of us through our faith in him. Because we know that when we sin and we fail, we go to our great high priest. We come boldly to his throne of grace in time of need, and we find forgiveness, and we have access at all times. And if we're faithful to confess our sins, if we're willing to confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from our sins. He's the advocate with the Father. Jesus is the only one that has ever lived that is king, priest, prophet. And he is revealed as such in the Old Testament. 
because he's the king, the ultimate king that God promised to David. He's the priest. He's the great high priest, not of the order of the Levites, but the order of Melchizedek, which if we're teaching the book of Hebrews, we'd go into in greater detail, that supersedes the Levitical priesthood. That's what the book of Hebrews is basically about in the New Testament. And Moses, who was the greatest voice of God ever in the Old Testament, said, there's a prophet coming after me. Him you shall hear, and Jesus is that prophet. So tonight as we're gathered here in this church singing songs of praise and fellowshipping, we are fellowshipping in the fullness as the church of Jesus Christ, in the fullness of Christ being our king, our high priest, and our prophet. And we say yes and amen, right? So here with Uzziah, when he's like, hey, but I'm the king, I'm rolling, I'm pretty full of myself, I don't need to retire, I'm, I'm really firing on all cylinders right now at 64 or whatever, he's like, I'm going to go, hey, I'm the king and no one tells me I can't do this. And the priest said, don't do it, don't, they tried to stop him. And he's like, no one stops the king. It says he was furious. I'm the boss. I'm the CEO. I'm everything. I'm going to run for president. I'm the king. And he goes running in there. And he starts, he gets struck with leprosy from the Lord. And they're trying to stop him. And they see him with leprosy. He sees them. And they all run out together. So this is what happened. His heart was lifted up. And he went into the house of worship with a prideful heart and a lifted up heart. And God, listen, this is important. God separated him from the presence of the Lord and even his position as a king because he went into exile as a leper and he was no longer able to function on his throne as an earthly king. He could no longer go to the temple to offer up sacrifices outside of the temple as the king and he was essentially removed as the king as his son Jotham replaced him so he was disqualified. That's very sobering, wouldn't you agree? Worship generation, body of Christ. It's a very sobering lesson from him. His heart was lifted up, and it cost him separation and disqualification. And just this incredible life had a very sad ending. Those last couple years were very sad because he did things that, that misrepresented the Lord. Only the Lord can be the king, the, high, the king, the priest, and the prophet. And once he did that, that's a non-negotiable I do believe he was chastened by the Lord. I do believe that the, he loved the Lord and, and he just, he did something really foolish, but there was no, there was no saving it. That's just, it was a, that's it. Career's over. But I would say this, this, this is what we learn about this. We need to receive reproof. If there's a lesson for us in 2023 from this king is the priest tried to stop him, but he would not receive it. So when I read this text, I'm like, man, Joey, be teachable, be reprovable, receive correction when it comes your way. I don't like to receive reproof, do you? Like, it's never like, I don't wake up and say, wow, it's a great day to be reproved. You ever notice wives when you're trying to reprove your husbands, they're never in the mood to be reprooved? Or is it just me in 34 years of marriage? Like, I don't say, oh, honey, you caught me on a good day. I'm so reprovable right now. Like, just... Come on, bring, give me a little more reproof. Well, as a matter of fact, I also want to tell you this. Like, I've never been like, oh, I received that correction. No, I have a tantrum. I get really mad. And like a little son of Adam, I storm off, and then I have to process it and work through it. And then I'm like, oh, I'm really sorry, honey, you know. But like, no one likes reproof. Sometimes ministry is really hard because you got to reprove somebody. you got to call out something. You're like, but I, I, you know, you learn to be gentle because I've been called out, and I don't like to be called out. So if I ever have to call you out... The Bible tells us in Galatians to do so in a spirit of meekness because I've been called out. And I don't like to be called out, and I don't want to call you out. So if the Lord makes me call you out, believe me, you, I don't want to do it. He did not receive reproof, and it cost him 
that fellowship, that ministry he had to lead the people in worship of the Lord with the sacrifice up front, it cost him access to the Lord and, and to access to be with God's people. And it cost him his purpose. He was alive to be a king. And once he had the leprosy, he couldn't be the king. So he even lost his purpose. It's a very sad ending. Fortunately for him, it wasn't a long time. It was not a long time. It's just kind of like if you ended up in assisted living for a couple years, and it was your own doing. But he did have 52 really good years, so praise the Lord for that. Now we move on to our second king, Jotham, his son. Jotham does not nearly get the same amount of press as Ahaz or Uzziah, but he's important as well. So Azariah, Uzziah, he goes into like an exile. He's, he's quarantined, and he's been humbled, and that's that. And now Jotham, his son, who's 25 years of age, he becomes the replacement king. And meanwhile, again, in the north, all this instability. Syrians, the Philistines are still on the move, but the Assyrians are the big, the big bad boys on the block at this point. And it's going to affect everybody, especially as we get to Hezekiah soon uh, next week. So now, we come to Jotham, and so again in chapter 15, we pick him up in verse 32. So this is part two of our three kings. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, because that's just another one of those northern kings, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Joshua, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. However, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. And now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? In those days, the Lord began to send Rezan, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, against Judah. And so Jotham rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David of his fathers. And then Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place. Now, Jotham didn't live that long, did he? Right? He's 41. That's really young. That's really young. Unlike his dad who became king at 16, that's a high school sophomore, junior, right? That's JV football, maybe first year varsity football or something like that, girls volleyball. You know, that's kind of where he's at when he became king, Uzziah. Jotham's 25. That's post-college, right? So he's working on his master's, or maybe he's just doing a really good job at work, or he's, he's 25. Maybe he's living at home with his parents, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, he's 25. We can all understand what a 25, you know, there's a male at 25 is a big difference than a male at 16 is what I'm saying, or they should be. Should be a huge maturity difference between a 16-year-old male and a 25-year-old male. So the advantage of when he became king, and again, Going back to Hezekiah, he saw Uzziah. He grew up with Uzziah, and he's weeping. The Lord gives him a vision. When Uzziah dies, now he's got the new king, the son, Jotham. But at least we don't have a child king like we saw previously, like Jehoram. And, and we, we, he's a man. He's 25. And he's already been administrating because his dad's been in quarantine with the leprosy. It's been transitory, but now it's official. This is our new king. Now, with him... Like his father, it says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So there's a consistency here. They both did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That's a, an overall panoramic of their life and legacy. But like his father, he didn't remove the, other upper pla- the, um, the high places. So they have the common little link. But that's pretty much for everybody except Hezekiah and Josiah are the only ones who removed the high places. So that's not necessarily that big of a thing because it's more the people 
and what they were choosing to do regardless of who the king is. Because you can have good kings and good queens. It still doesn't mean the people are going to do the right thing if culturally they just decide they're not going to do the right thing. And so that's a factor in this story as well. So as the northern kingdom is, is unraveling and being attacked and devoured bit by bit by the Assyrians and others, they're still standing strong. He's the king. And we read one thing of distinction about his life that is the legacy of his life. And it is there in verse 35 where it says, he built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. So here again, we have a king, now the son, connected to the house of worship, the temple. His identity and his record for us in the Bible is based upon this one thing he did. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Now, if we're looking for just one word to associate with each king, from the perspective of second kings, in the case of Uzziah's dad, he was struck, right? That was, that was, he was struck by the Lord because he went to the house of the Lord and went in a lane that wasn't his and he exalted himself for something that he wasn't to be. But he was struck by the Lord in the house of the Lord. But here his son, Jotham, we just get one thing that he did. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. He built something. See, Uzziah was disqualified from something. Ahaz is going to destroy everything in the house of the Lord, but he built in the house of the Lord. And so he really, in our three kings, he's the real hero of the three kings. And you've probably never read about Jotham or even had him on your radar. I mean, it's one verse. But isn't it nice if you've got one verse in the Bible that it says you built something related to things that are spiritual? I mean, isn't it nice that it said that you did what was right and you built something to do with the house of the Lord. That's what he did. So with Jotham, he did what was right. He had no obvious blemish. He built the gate of the house of the Lord. And the thing about this gate, this is what's interesting to me when you study it. It was a, like a direct path from the palace, the king's palace, to go to the house of worship. It linked the political position of power with the spiritual position of dependence from which it came from. Now, when Ahaz is in power, oh, the Assyrian king, he tells Ahaz, because he sold his soul to the devil, to the Assyrian king, the Assyrian king tells him, tear down that pathway. See, Jotham's son, Uzziah's grandson, is going to be evil, and he's going to be sold out. And the king who he sold himself out to, the Assyrians, will tell him, tear down that way between the palace and the place of worship. That's going to be his legacy, and we'll get to him in a minute, which I only share it now because it shows us the significance of it being built. If there's wicked kings that hate something, something spiritual with the Lord, it's probably something good, right? In other words, what the devil hates is usually is going to be something good. And an evil king of Assyria, when he's trying to stop the people of God from doing what's right, whatever he attacks, it's something the people of God should take very seriously, so if kings try and keep you from gathering as a church or singing as a body of Christ or teaching the word of God or preaching the gospel, it's probably a good thing for us to keep doing those things. And this is good. His dad was good but was disqualified. And he did one thing in his reign of 16 years that mattered. He built a direct route between the palace and the central place of worship. 
whereas his dad lost access to the place of worship because he disqualified himself by going in there, he accentuated and expanded the position of worship in his life, which is nice because he didn't let his dad's failures define him. Dad's disqualification and dad stumbling him with the Lord didn't keep him from going forward with the Lord. He didn't blame, like, he could have said, well, you know, he could have been like all those kings of the north that just sold their soul to the devil and tried to appease all these people coming against them and did everything evil imaginable. He wasn't like that. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he didn't let his dad's failure keep him from doing what was right. He built the upper gate, which just reminds us as we go forward in a new year, it's not what came before us that matters. It's what we do with what we have that matters today. That's why Paul the Apostle said, forgetting those things are behind, we press on to what lies ahead to the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Whatever has been destroyed by the devil or kings or our own failures prior to 2023, there's nothing we can do about that. And some things are out of our lane and some things are in our lane. So we need to know what our lane is and we need to build the path to the upper gate of the temple. Because... What's interesting about Jotham is when you read about Solomon, he built all these things and like the stables and the military defense and all this stuff. And he built the ships to go get gold and all that. Those aren't spiritual. This is spiritual. Body of Christ, WG. His one act is spiritual. This is not political. This is spiritual. He did one thing that we're told that would have been a witness to everybody in Judah. I'm the king. I depend upon the king, and I'm building this upper gate so you can see this is where I go. This is where my authority comes from. This is where my power comes from. This is who I'm accountable to. I bow the knee, and I bow the knee at this temple. And you all know how my dad failed in that temple. But I'm still going back to that temple because his failure is not my failures, and I'm going forward with the Lord, and I'm building the upper gate. That's what it says, and that's what he did. So it's very encouraging to me to look at the life of Jotham and the reign of Jotham and say, you know, he just, it's, he's kind of out of the news too. John McEnroe, the famous tennis player who had all the famous tantrums back in the day, and you older people know John McEnroe. I have to admit he was one of my favorite athletes too, by the way, which worked against me in some ways. But he used to say that any press is good press. Of course, that was before our modern social media. But John McEnroe loved press. Any press he said was good press. That you're talking about John McEnroe was good to him. But you know, I think we'd all agree, some people don't want to be on social media. They want any social media at all. And they don't want anyone to... Some people just like, they don't even want anyone to know they exist. And the end of all that is to go move to the desert and live in a trailer and just wait for the end of the world or until you leave the world. But in all fairness... The thing about Jotham is there's, he's not in the news. Like, in our own country, the previous president and the current president, they're in the news for everything all the time. It never ends. The news is endless. <laughs> it enrages half the country, depending on who they're talking about. But if it's not this tweet, it's this policy. And you can't help but talk about like, what are they doing? They're in the news. Jotham wasn't in the news. He took care of business. You, you, had, you, had to, you had to really look for something to, to work up against him if you wanted to talk about him over your tea in the afternoon in Jerusalem. Ah, he's kind of boring. He's vanilla. The dude doesn't do anything. He gets us upset. 
He administrates, he does his job, and he, look, what can you say? He built, he built the upper gate. Look at that, man. Like, I kind of like that. So here's a thought that goes with this. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 4, as we think about representing the Lord in our timeline, Paul said something very interesting where he said, aspire to live a quiet, peaceful life and glorify the Lord in doing such. And I look at Jotham, I go like, man, Lord, give us something more. Give us something more. His Instagram is so boring. Hi, Jotham. A word from Jotham to start the new year. Like, dude, come on, stir it up. Say something that gets people going. He's not like that. He's just, this is all we get. He reigned 16 years. He died in his early 40s. He did what was right, and he built the upper gate. But you know what? That's a good resume for when you step into eternity. Because he's a king, he's a leader, and, he, and he, he definitely, when he stepped into eternity, and they buried him with the kings, they buried him in the tomb of the kings. He was a good king. And when they laid him to rest, and everyone was there, when people went home from his public service and his public burial, you could go back to your part of Judah, Bethlehem, wherever you live, and you say, you know, his dad was pretty amazing. His dad did a lot of stuff. His dad was stupid down the stretch, but I'll say this about Jotham. He lived a good life. And he, he didn't do anything to disgrace the Lord. And, you know, the prophets will tell you, Isaiah, the guys will tell you, he was a good man, and he built the upper temple, so the upper gate. So when they would go back to the temple after he died, they could go up and look at, man, that's, that's the legacy of his life, which makes me think, the value of aspiring to live a good, peaceful life is unto the Lord and to be a quality citizen for the Lord, which is what Paul was talking about to the Thessalonians there in chapter 4. But also, when we think about the legacy of our life, if there's one thing that defines it, I hope it's something spiritual. You know, the surf was massive on Friday. Did you know that? Biggest surf in 50 years, maybe 60 years, maybe ever in my timeline. 20-foot surf up and down the West Coast. My son-in-law, Jacob, surfs, and he, he told me on Tuesday, he's like, hey, did you hear Friday? It's going to be like 20 feet. It's going to be bombing. I was like, what? Like, you know, I haven't surfed that much lately, but like, oh, we can, you know, we can, look, dancing keeps you in shape. That's your cardio. Then you got to stretch because that's just life at 60. And then you got to get out there and get a couple surfs in so you don't drown. And then you kind of pick your deal right there. And yeah, he's like, yeah, it's going to peak Friday morning. I was like, oh, Friday morning? I'm speaking at the missions conference Friday morning. <laughs> I've, been, I've seen this movie before. It wasn't the first time I committed to ministry when the surf was doing something special. And so Jacob pulls up his phone. It's like, look, swell up. And they're comparing it to 08. I remember the 08 swell at Swami's. Or the 97 swell. I'm like, oh, I surfed that swell. Oh, oh, oh. And they're showing the purple blob like for the storm. And the so- I was like, oh. Jennifer's like, you are not paleo on 20-foot surf. I'm like, oh, okay, you know, just, 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 look, you know, just give me a chance to think about it. Now I can come to that conclusion as well. You know, I do have a good life insurance policy. Huh? So, but, but, it's, but it's like, and it's, everything's like Friday morning. I'm like, oh, I, I'm totally committed Friday. I'm a big Calvary Friday. These are the missionaries we pray for. I mean, these are, these are the people on the list, right? Brian Broderson, they asked me to come up Friday. These are the people. They're there. <laughs> right? Like, that's just the way it is. And um, so I had to just immediately say, like, we're not, we're not going to Rincon, or we're not going to Baja. Like, this is not going to happen. Hey, you, get in your lane. Stay in your lane. But I got to tell you, being at the missions conference Friday was so joyful. Because one of the people on this, 
She's not on our list. We, we, we didn't send money. We're going to this year. She's in the Philippines, Betsy. And I was on this panel, and Richard Semino was hosting the panel, so it was uh, Matt, who's been to WG from the Bible College in Jerusalem, and, and Betsy and myself. I didn't know what to expect. I was just there. I enjoyed the session before that. And they introduced me to Betsy. Now, I've prayed for Betsy a ton. I'm like, I'm sitting next to Betsy. Like, I'm, I've been praying for the last three months for stuff for her in the Philippines, what her needs are, just so you know. She's like, oh, you're my son's favorite. He came to worship generation at Big Calvary. I was like, she goes, can I get a photo with you? I'm like, no, can I get a photo with you? Every time I said something, it sounded like, you know, calculated and intentional. Every time she said something, everyone clapped. You know, I was like, yeah, see, like, this spirit-filled woman. I'm like, copy too. You know, like, it's like, wow. You know, like, she just turns up with unwanted kids in the mountains of some island in the Philippines just going like, I'm going to leave the stage right now. You know, you're kind of embarrassed to be there. But here's the thing that I thought about. Someone took a couple of photos of me on the podium with Betsy and the panel. I got the shot of me on the podium. Like, hey, I'm a big Calvary. I'm speaking. I'm doing something with missions. But today and yesterday, everyone's posting all their photos of 20, 30-foot surf. Sean Thompson, ring kind of 20 feet. Everything. Black's Beach is like this. La Jolla Cove, Newport, the best it's ever been. Blackies was the best it's ever been? <laughs> yeah. And all I can think is, you know what my image is? Me at the missions conference sitting next to Betsy. And that is the best feeling to have in your life. And I thought, you know, 35 years ago when I was called to ministry, that's what I was called to. So when you leave one legacy on planet Earth, make sure it's a spiritual one. I had three guest speaking events last year. So the odds are like one in 100 days that I'm committed to something and this earth's the biggest earth ever. So I'm telling you this because it, it, it's just a fun little story about how you see things as you get older, what really matters. Because there's always another big Wednesday. There's always that day again, you know. It never ends. I'm 61. That day came and went. I lived that dream. And I'm really happy if I step into eternity on Monday. The image you have of me on Friday, the 6th, is at the missions conference next to Betsy and not drowning at Black's Beach with my saying, I told you so. <laughs> Amen? Build the upper gate. WG, build the upper gate. Let's build spiritual things that that's our legacy. If one, I don't want people to say Joy Brown's a pipe master. I want them to say he was the pastor. You know? That's what I want. We talk about dreams come true from when I won the pipe masters, but the movie and the book is beyond the dream. That's what you need to know. We want to build the upper gate. And then finally, we come to this last king, Ahaz. So, Jonathan built good things. But Ahaz, oh, he's a whole chapter, and you kind of figure out, where do you jump into Ahaz? Because it's just all so cluttered, and it's nothing's good. But I'm going to start with verse 10, because this is the beginning of where he dismantled worship properly in the temple in Jerusalem. So we'll jump in on this text. So he's already off to no good. He's got emphasize going. He's got people doing whatever they want under any green tree with idolatry. Chronicles told us he built idols in every village of Jerusalem to other gods. But this is dealing with the temple. That's our context. And it says this in verse 10. Now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pirzer, king of Assyria, because he made a covenant with him, and he's to protect him from the northern kingdom and Syria. So he went to Damascus and king, because the Assyrians conquered the Syrians in Damascus. So he went up there and said, thank you. Here's all the treasuries from the house of the Lord. 
So he went to Damascus, and King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest the design of the altar and its pattern according to all of its workmanship. So this was an altar to false gods in Syria. Then Uriah, verse 11, the priest built an altar according to all that the king Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before the king Ahaz came back from Damascus. So he sent the plans and he built it before he came back. And when the king came back from Damascus, the king saw the altar and the king approached the altar and made offerings on it. So he burned his burnt offering, his grain offering, he poured his drink offering and sprinkled blood of his peace offering offering on the altar. See, these are offerings that God set up in the Old Testament in the law so he's doing God's offerings on a pagan altar, verse, four, verse 14. He also brought the bronze altar, which was before the Lord. That's the correct altar. From the front of the temple, from between the new altar and the house of the Lord, and he put it on the north side of the new altar. He displaced God's altar and put it to the side. Verse 15. Then King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, On the great new altar, burn the morning offerings the evening grain offerings, the king's burnt offering and his grain offering with the burnt offerings of all the people of the land, their grain offerings, their drink offerings, the sprinkling of all the blood, the burnt offerings on all the blood of the sacrifice. And the bronze altar, uh, that'll be, that, that's, that shall be for me to inquire by. So we're not going to make it totally insignificant. It'll be something I go to, just me, when I go the way I want to go. Verse 16. Thus did Uriah the priest according to all that King Ahaz commanded. And King Ahaz cut off the panels of the carts and removed the lavers from them. These are things Solomon built. And he took down the sea from the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on pavement of stone. Also he removed the Sabbath pavilion which they had built in the temple. And he removed the king's outer entrance that's what Jotham built from the house of the Lord on account of the king of Assyria. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaz, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? So Ahaz rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. But Chronicles tells us something very important. Though he was buried with his fathers in the city of David, he was not buried in the tombs of the kings. He was so evil, he was not buried in the tombs of the kings. And whereas priests tried to stop Uzziah, his grandfather, from going to do something stupid in the temple... He had Uriah go along with him, and he was his yes man. He said what he wanted to hear, not what he needed to hear. And so he didn't have the people trying to restrain him. They just went along with what he did. We also know when he made the deal with Tiglath-Pilser, the king of Assyria, he said, I'm your son and I'm your servant. Deliver me from the northern kingdom and from Syria, and I'll do whatever you want. And he took the temple treasury, that was the Lord's, paid off the Assyrian king, temporary, because you can never give an Assyrian king enough money. He'll always come back for more. Gave him the money and thought he had resolved the situation. Now, in 2 Chronicles, there is qu there's quite a record on his evil and how he provoked the Lord. And I'm just going to read a couple things uh, about him where it says that what Ahaz did, that he reigned, when he reigned in Judah, and it said his death and his apostasy. Now, in the time of his distress, this is 2 Chronicles 28, in the time of King Ahaz's distress, he had become increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him. And he said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and all Israel. He stumbled everybody with everything he did. So Ahaz gathered the articles of the house of God, cut in pieces the articles of God, shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. In every single city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods, and he provoked to anger the Lord God of his fathers." 
Now, the rest of his acts and all that he did are they not written in the book of the kings of Israel, which we just read. But they did not bring him when he died into the tombs of the kings of Israel. And then Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. The greatest king ever in this line is going to come from him. But he's terrible. And that's what he did. That's a more expanded version of what he did. So as we think about him, there's something more about him, too. God gave him Jesus. The Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, gave him Jesus which makes his life even more sobering to us because he rejected Jesus. And here's how he rejected Jesus. The famous prophecy in Isaiah 7, ask for a sign, I'll give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive a child. Right? That's, that's that text for Christmas. The virgin birth, the virgin conception. That promise, that prophecy was given by Isaiah the prophet with a short-term, long-term promise so it's a twofold prophecy, actually. We call that a double prophecy. But it was given to Ahaz. Ahaz starts Isaiah chapter 7. That famous chapter, he starts it by name. And he was so bad, and God delivered him from the king of Assyria and the king of the north. Excuse me. God delivered him from the king of Syria and the kings of, of northern, the northern kingdom when they came against him. And he said to Ahaz, even though Ahaz wasn't faithful or walked with the Lord, he said to Ahaz, look, ask of me a sign, I'll give you a sign. And Ahaz said, I don't test the Lord like that. I'm not going to do that. And God says, well, I'm going to give you a sign. It's the virgin birth. That's the backdrop to the Virgin Mary and the Immaculate Conception. Ahaz is part of the story. That's this Ahaz. When he rejected the opportunity to have personal faith, and let God give him a sign of confirmation for the king that God would give him victory against his kings. He rejected it. And God said, well, I'm going to give you a sign about my son who's going to come through the virgin. I'm going to give you a sign. The, the great prophecy of Jesus Christ and the virgin birth in its context is given to King Ahaz after he rejected the invitation to have personal faith in the living God. Isn't that amazing, WG? That's very sobering. We look at that text and we go, give me Jesus. We're here every Christmas. You know, like the virgin birth, hark the herald angels sing. And you know, this guy, he's outside. It's, he, he, it's incredible that when he rejected God's invitation, God gave him the prophecy of Jesus Christ coming into the world. That is just so, you know, if you can't sleep tonight, think about that, that there's, there's just something so profound in the, in the reality of this. When he rejected, when, when Ahaz rejected a personal faith to trust in the Lord as the king of Israel, God the Father gave him God the Son, Jesus Christ, in his response. You talk about a soft answer turns away wrath. God's like, you know, I'm not going to hammer you. I'm, a, I'm just going to speak about my son. And for the unbelief, to the defiled, everything is defiled. But to the pure, all things are pure. And those who get it are going to get it from here to eternity right into 2023 with the Church of Jesus Christ and the preaching of the gospel. Because the virgin birth, of course, is essential to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Because in Adam, all sin and die. But Jesus is the second Adam. He, he had to be born of the virgin. It's just, oh, God's word is so beautiful. But the real, the real problem for Ahaz is he rejected personal faith. See, we see he tore down, he tore down, he removed. Like the words associated, he built an altar according to what he wanted to do. 
and he put it in place of God's altar. I've got these words circled. Then he cut off this, and then he removed that, then he removed that, and he removed that. That's what he did with the house of the Lord. So Uzziah was struck down from being in the house of the Lord because he went to exalt himself as a priest in the house of the Lord. Jotham built the pathway to the house of the Lord for himself and for all Israel's seed. This is the way we do it in Israel, in Judah, with the Lord. But this guy, apart from sacrificing his own children on idols to Molech, emphasized, and encouraging sexual morality without restraint under every green tree and all the idolatries that go with it, in relation to the place of worship, to the temple, he so defiled it by removing the very altar that speaks of what Christ would do on the cross. And he put it there with his own altar, which is what we see so many people do. How many people remove Jesus, the Savior, and his sinless blood and replace it with Jesus, political correctness Jesus? A Jesus of their own mind. How many false belief systems? I mean, the New Testament has so many warnings about false Jesuses, and church history is filled with the wrong Jesus. And even in the last 30 years, we've seen people change songs to talk about Jesus and his sanctifying work, his saving grace, his blood, the blood of God shed for us. And they change the words because they don't like it. It's like they're moving the bronze altar and putting their little Syrian altar in place of it. Give me Jesus. Give me the blood. Give me the cross. Give me the empty tomb and give me the ascension to the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning for all eternity. Give me Jesus coming back on the white horse with the robe dipped in blood. That's our Jesus. That's the bronze altar. That's the carts that should be there. That's the sea that should be there. That's the upper way that should be there. All that should be there, he destroyed. So it just reminds me, and this was my application on Tuesday night on this. It reminds me, don't let the devil or unbelief or anything evil of men destroy all that work in my life and my heart with my mind with Jesus Christ in 2023. Because it's not my job to please denominations or church leaders that don't believe Jesus is the only way. It's, It's not. My job is to teach and tend this church and to function healthily in the Calvary Chapel movement and the evangelical church worldwide. That's, that's my calling. The congregation, domestic outreach, international missions. I know exactly what my lane is and my calling. I know my position. I know the, the, like a football player, these are the schemes we run. This is our playbook. This is how we do it. I, so for me, when I read this, it's not like about denominational leaders that deny the Lord, deny everything that's good about the Lord, and just have a Jesus of their own interpretation, like this guy. No, for me, it's like the person in the mirror. I got to be really careful I protect that bronze altar. I got to really be careful that I protect those carts and those, that sea and those things. And mo- that upper way, that's the way to the presence of the Lord. That's my job, and that's your responsibility. See, in 2023, we want to be like Jotham and build the way and maintain the way, not be the kind of people that tear down the way. We're part of the solution, not part of the problem. That's what the Church of Jesus Christ is. And we're going, whatever we do, we want to do all things is unto the Lord. Whatever we're doing, we want to do all things with excellence is unto the Lord. And whatever we're doing, we want to do it better and better to the glory of the Lord. That's who we are. That's the Church of Jesus Christ in 2023. That's who worship generation is. So we can learn from these kings, and we can learn the good things, the bad things, and even the bad things, we can make them a positive thing. So for I just leave Ahaz and say, you know what? He didn't receive it. I want to receive it. He didn't believe it. I want to believe it. He, he tore down. I want to build up. I want to go from glory to glory, and I believe so do you.